Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. I'm so glad to be here today. Let, let me review just a moment what we've done in the last several weeks. As we looked at the transition of, of your pastor, Dustin, uh, to a new call, a new assignment in Tennessee, we talked the first week I was with you about pastors, elders, and shepherds and what the biblical picture of those responsibilities and that leadership, what it looks like. The next week I began Uh, without really announcing it as such, a series of talks about the purposes of the church. And as long as the church has been around, people have had approaches at how to understand why we exist and what we do. But I do it this way, and I'll just let you in on it. I give it worship, evangelism, discipleship, ministry, and fellowship, sometimes called community. So the first week of that, we talked about worship, and I use this simple definition. Worship is placing the mind's attention and the heart's affection on God and responding to him for who he is and what he's done. And really, you could lift that truth, that simple sentence, right out of uh, the great commandment response of Jesus to the question, what's the greatest commandment? Well, it's to love the Lord your God with all that you have. That's a function of worship and a response of worship. And then you love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said that's the second command, which is like unto it. So really, worship is placing our mind's attention, loving the Lord Lord with all of our heart, our soul, our strength, our mind, placing that on the Lord and then responding to him for what he's done and what he does through us. Worship evangelism. And we talked about the blind man. And the blind man had a simple testimony. Uh, When cornered by religious people, he said, I don't know exactly who this is, but I do know I was blind. He met Jesus and now he sees. And I talked about that as the world's simplest outline for us sharing our faith. And remember, sharing our faith is not the job of a communicator, a pastor, a preacher on Sunday morning although that is a piece of this job, to be sure, this calling. But it's all of our responsibility, responsibilities to say, this is my life before Jesus, this is how I came to Jesus, and this is my life since. And I quoted as central to that talk, Romans, the first chapter, the 16th verse, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Scripture goes on to say, first to the Jew, And then the Gentile, worship, evangelism, discipleship. Last week we talked about discipleship. And the command is clear in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. We're to be people who make disciples who make disciples. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.2, we're to find faithful men who are able to pass this truth on as well to faithful men. There is a disciples who make disciples mandate in Scripture. And what I said multiple times last week that several of you resonated with and were so encouraging is that's our job. That's not my job. That won't be your pastor's sole job. That's our job as the church. We're to make disciples. 
Today we're talking about ministry, and that goes to the point. And if I could just sort of pull up a chair figuratively and sit down for a moment and have a little chat with the body of Christ that is East Haven this morning, that brings up when we talk about ministry some confusion about the term. So I'm uh, maybe 19 years old. I'd gone to Mississippi College to major in pre-law, and uh, about, I don't know, a year in, I guess, it was the beginning of my sophomore year, I'm standing in the girls' dorm lobby with several of my friends, and we're talking about doing ministry and what the Lord's doing in our life, and out of my mouth, I said, I don't believe I can do anything but ministry with my life, and I hearkened to that moment as a sense of acknowledging a call, putting a stake down in my life and saying from that point forward, I was going to be responsive to the Lord in the area of doing ministry. Interestingly, when I said to my father later and to my home church later and to my friends later and my friends that night that I couldn't do anything but ministry with my life, they knew what I was talking about because the nomenclature, the definition of ministry in our culture is about people who go, these are air quotes, go into the ministry. And I had a sense of call, like vocationally, that's what I believed God was calling me to, and that's what I've done for the last 45 years. I have done ministry as a response to that call. However, the word has really been corrupted over the years. We know what we mean. And, and by the way, today is not a, I'm correcting everybody, I've got this figured out. It's none of that. It is to simply observe that we have corrupted the word in a way that places incredible responsibility on the man you'll call your pastor and the rest of your pastoral staff, and I'll talk about that in a minute, and removes responsibility from you sweet people sitting here. This guy, whoever he will be in six months or a year, or I really like you, so I'm praying against your pastor search committee, just so you know. But if it's a year or a year and a half or seven years, whatever it is, I'll be like 90 years old at that point. I don't, I don't see me being here. But nonetheless, whoever this guy will be that will stand here and bring God's word and shepherd you as a pastor, his job is not to do the ministry and your job is not to watch him. I'm just going to let that rest right there till I get an amen. It's not his job to do the ministry. It's not your job to watch him. Uh, Yeah, if you didn't really get that, then we ought to stop and park right here for a minute because this this is critically important of the places that God honors because they have an understanding of what ministry is. Now, I'm I'm being confessional. Remember, I just figuratively pulled up the chair and we're just sitting here chatting for a minute. Many, many, many churches become effectively stagnant as an organization because they're not on mission. Uh, They spend a lot of time watching, judging, building structures to watch the staff, pastor in particular, do ministry. And we wonder why we're not moving forward and we're not missional in what we do. Well, it's because we have a misunderstanding of the word. Now, and by the word, I mean the word ministry. Now, that's not a big deal. All of my friends knew when I said I was going into the ministry that that was common language for people who were going to be, uh, and even the language betrays itself, ministers of the gospel or pastors or shepherds. 
And it's even more confusing than that. When I went into the ministry, when I made that declaration to my home church and they rejoiced with me and prayed over me, it meant to the majority of the people in the room, I found out that it meant being a pastor, preaching pastor. And I didn't know that I would do that at that point. I didn't know what God's assignment would be for me. A mission position or a music position or a youth ministry position, as we called in those days, or what, I didn't know. I just knew I wanted to be obedient, and I wanted to do the work of a pastor, shepherd, overseer in the life of people for the remainder of my life as God had called me. We also, if I, if I can remain in the living room just casually here for a couple of minutes, we've gotten really confused about the high view and the low view of our pastoral staff in a lot of our churches Let me do a brief history for you uh, of one staff area to illustrate this. Through church history, and we don't have time for that today, nor do I have the expertise to boil it down, but through church history, there have been people who functioned as pastors or shepherds or parsons or preachers uh, to take care of people in their parish or their area, their church, their, their congregation. There have been those people. But over the last 75 years or so, particularly in big churches in big areas, there have been people who specialized in something. Uh, a worship pastor, we used to say minister of music, or the, the youth, wait for it, director, or the youth minister, or the youth pastor, now it's a student pastor, it's kind of gone through a, a series of changes, uh, minister of education, very common uh, position in many Baptist churches in our world, an administrative pastor, a preschool. And then it gets interesting, which is not about today, but director, minister, we hardly ever call. Anyway, it just gets complicated. And what we've sometimes done, even if we don't actually believe this, we've sort of reinforced this, that the preaching pastor lead of the staff is the real pastor And everybody else just works for him to get some stuff done. Now, I've been to the rodeo, and that there's a lot of truth in that. Uh, I'm I'm org charts and consulting. There's a lot of truth in how that operates practically. But if we're not careful, we can devalue people who are responsive to God's call and have this incredible gift mix and a level of obedience in ministry, we can fail to kind of elevate them in, in our eyes in the sense that we want to be under their leadership or shepherding because they're not the real pastor. Now, every 21-year-old youth minister that East Haven calls from this point forward should not necessarily be an elder or a pastor or whatever. They're not the same as your pastor in experience, but Perhaps many of them are the same in call, and we want to honor that. I'm looking at Robert Mayfield over here, who's been here 12 years, I'm guessing. 16, 16 but who's counting? <laughs> it's, it's been a minute, hasn't it? Robert was at Broadmoor when I got to Broadmoor to be the associate pastor, the chief of staff guy, but 16 years ago, obviously, and uh, got to know Robert and Michelle. You would be, you would be robbing you... And I think you do this, not rob you, but I think you do see Robert as a real pastor. 
You don't simply see him as a functional guy that works for the real pastor who you're going to call one day. Robert's a pastor, and he pastors and shepherds people, and he does that with a talent mix, but also a gift mix, which arguably is different. And then he equips and he motivates and he moves people in order to lead us into worship of the Father in this place and other ministries as well. It's a high view of Robert Mayfield, not because he's Robert Mayfield, but because he is an obedient servant called by God to pastor or shepherd in some category, some part of the org chart, which is great, but it is a high calling. So we've confused the word when we talk about ministry being a purpose of the church. It's not ministry in the sense that it's about the professionals who do ministry and we all uh, give and come and support and watch and observe. It's not that. It's really that there is a particular call here, and I keep saying here, but to hear and hear those who are called to do what some would call clergy or pastoral or shepherding work. So what is ministry for the church? Well, ministry for the church is doing some things in the power and the presence of Jesus to the glory of God that express love for our neighbor. Now today, even though I've done a long introduction and kind of caught us up on where we're going, we're going to be Bible heavy today, so I'm going to ask you to follow me. I'm going to read from the screens. You don't have to read aloud, but I want to talk some about the question of uh, what is ministry, who is ministry for, who does that, and then as we look at all that, we want to find out what is the correlation between our faith, the God that we serve, that we love, that inhabits us, and the deeds that we do. What is ministry? Uh, And what is the role of ministry? First of all, let's think about these people I've talked about, like your pastor, Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13 is a passage where Paul is writing to the church and he describes ministry. And he says, talking about this early church in Ephesus, he says, and he, God, gave some to be apostles In this setting, apostles most often is understood to be the 12 disciples of Jesus. At that point, 11 and the replacement uh, who acted as the church fathers or leaders to begin with. Some to be prophets, to foretell and to foretell the truth of God. Some to be evangelists. There were those who God gave special favor and anointing who would present the truth of God's word and God's uh, salvation, and people would respond, and some as pastors and teachers, okay? These people have roles that they work in for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. NIV says, for the work of ministry, to the building up of the body of Christ. He gave some for the work of equipping for the work of ministry until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So Paul is saying to the church at Ephesus, God has called people to different kinds of leadership roles And leadership is always serving, 
Leadership is never lording over. It is always serving. Let me say that again. Leadership is always serving. Even if you serve by pointing the way, even if you serve leaders by seeing what needs to be improved or what needs to be removed, and you show the way, you are always serving people by leading. So God gives leaders to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Who does the work of the ministry? The saints. Let me ask you, who does the work of the ministry? The saints do the work of the ministry. Now, that saint language, you might say to me, Gary, I've got a Catholic background. I don't understand that saint language. The saint language is about, it's about a relationship with God, becoming a child of God, becoming anointed by God. You, if you're a believer in Jesus, should be doing ministry that you're equipped for by those whom God has called to be pastors and teachers. So the job of the man who fills this pulpit down the road is going to be multifold. It's not simple. But it is not to do all the ministry for you. You should be equipped to do ministry yourself. Now, let me just talk about traditional roles for a moment. Traditionally, a family will perhaps have a a seven-year-old little girl. And the little girl who's been loved well in Sunday school and taught well in Sunday school God's word may one morning, one evening, one night at prayer time, at bedtime, may have an inquiry about what it means to trust Jesus and follow Jesus or the language we sometimes use which is okay and sweet, a little less than accurate but ask Jesus into our hearts, may have that conversation And so often, mom and dad says, well, we need to make an appointment with the preacher so he can talk to you about what it means to know and love Jesus. That is okay. That's okay. Please do that if you need to do that. Can I say that again? That's really okay. If you need to do that, somebody in your family needs to do that, do that. That's okay. Having said that, that's actually your job. That's actually your job, is to lead your children, to impress upon your children the love for all that God is. That's actually your job, our job as parents in that setting. But the traditional role is we've hired, called, paid, looked forward to, searched out this man who we take our spiritual needs and opportunities to so he can do the official work. So he can lead our children to Jesus. Mom and dad, if you've got a working knowledge of the word of God, you lead your your child to Jesus. Don't leave the privilege in the hands of whoever the next guy is who preaches. Those children are yours. And if you love Jesus, you lead them to the Lord. That's, That's part of what you do. The pastor's job is to equip you so that you'll be ready in those moments and others with the people across the fence in your backyard, your neighbors or the people at work or the people at school. We should be equipped to do uh, worship, evangelism, discipleship, ministry, and community we ought to be equipping as pastors. If you were to call a pastor and that pastor believed that everything flowed through him, you have called the wrong man. got really quiet in here. 
But if a pastor believes it's all about him, you've got the wrong guy. There needs to be some correction there or some maturity or some growth or some accountability. And, and we're, just, we're just talking this morning, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I don't know a ton, but I have lived my life in this lane and there are a whole lot of pastors who think it's all about them. It is not all about them. And then there's the offsetting of people who believe it's not about them at all. You know, I, I work hard every day. I don't know what he does. He just works on Sunday and Wednesday. No, he doesn't. It's an incredible privilege, and it's an incredible call, and it's a lot of work. Ministry, we talked about the role of the pastor in equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. Let's talk about what ministry is. Uh, Acts 2, 42 through 47. Acts 2, 42 through 47, we talked about it a lot. It's a descriptive passage. You remember it, early church. Let's take a look at it. This is what believers were doing. In the early days of the church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We just talked about apostles. And to fellowship, to being together, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Hold that right there. Listen, we just sang asking God to show us with awe to move us to awe when we think about the incredible grace of God, the incredible provision of God, the sovereignty of God, we ought to be brought to awe. Kathy and I were driving in today, and we were talking about how we drove down Highway 90 into the sunset, but driving away 12 hours later, the sun was rising on the other side of this earth that spins at just the right angle, at just the right place to keep this planet temperate, in a way that we could survive and live for the praise of his glory, God's sovereignty should take us to awe. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. This passage, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This simple descriptive passage, as we've read before, describes a sense of awe and wonder, a sense of community and fellowship and prayer. And then they did whatever it took, watch this, to take care of each other. They took care of each other. They ministered to each other, whatever it took. If I needed to sell something to take care of a brother, I would sell something to take care of a brother. Now, I am about as politically conservative. I espouse capitalism as the most amazing experiment in governance, uh, democracy, a democratic republic, capitalism. I espouse very, very, very conservative views. But, and, the scripture knows that we don't actually own stuff. We are simply stewards of what we have. And the early church in this descriptive passage did whatever it takes to take care of each other. It's not about mine and yours in the church. It's about us being brothers and sisters in the family of God. 
They did ministry to each other, sometimes at great expense and sacrifice. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, the writer of Hebrews espouses this for the way we relate to each other. He says, let us hold unswervingly. That's a great word. I don't know that I've ever used that word outside of this passage. I've never been in the car. Even when my kids were learning to drive, I didn't say, let's drive unswervingly. Never did that. But it's a great word. It's about setting our eyes. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. The reality is that day in and day out, we should have such a commitment to each other that we encourage one another, not just about recognizing and this is foundational, but the presence of God in our life, not just that, but we really should be spurring one another on toward good deeds. That's ministry. We ought to be doing things that meet needs for people. When I, if I backed up to the Acts 2 passage, I'm always interested in that favor of all the people. I, I think the people saw the love for one another, which Jesus said would be a testimony of him. But I have the feeling that these people, people in the early church, the people who were spurred on to good deeds, watch this, I bet they tipped really well at the restaurant. Seriously. I think they blessed people because they didn't hold on to things closely, but they met needs where they saw needs to be met in the name of Jesus. And I bet they had the favor of all people. Can I tell you a little ugly secret? I was interviewed for a Clarion Ledger article about 20 years ago. I was one of three, I think, that were interviewed for this because I was preaching at church and I talked about tipping one morning. It wasn't the core of the sermon. It just happened to be a practical application. And I was talking about building a life and a spirit of generosity and how we ought to tip. And, and the people I knew that were in food service, restaurant business, they didn't like Sundays because church people would blow in and blow out and be demanding and not tip and not be gracious and generous. And what I said was, we ought to be most gracious because we are recipients of grace, God's unmerited favor, and we see that we need that as much as anybody else. And the Jesus who lives inside of us by the presence of the Holy Spirit is a Holy Spirit of grace, and we ought to walk in that kind of grace and truth all the time. And it ought to result in generosity in so many ways. Think about Acts 2 and selling things. But even in the simplest of functions, like eating at the Mexican restaurant, and instead of figuring out my tip is going to be $6.37, I'm going to leave 10. And I'm going to write, God bless you for serving me so well today, perhaps. I'm going to be generous. It's just a way of responding to the grace of God. What is service? What is ministry? It's really about meeting people's needs. It's about saying, I see you and I can help because we are all brothers and sisters in this together. 
or I see you, that you have a need, and out of the love for Christ, we're going to meet that need. Do you know what a silver lining is to natural, natural disasters? It's the testimony of the church. The director of missions in New Orleans is a friend. Uh, two or three of them have been friends, actually. And at Katrina, there's a tremendous percentage of people in certain neighborhoods in New Orleans who had a brand new view of Christianity, the Lord Jesus, and subtitle, and the work of Baptist, because Baptists rolled in and served and met needs and covered houses and cleaned up disaster, wrecked yards and lives. It was a testimony to the grace of God lived out in ministry. Hurricane just blew through Florida up along the East Coast. You know what the silver lining of that is going to be? That people are going to help one another and serve one another and do ministry to each other. And believers should be doing that with a clear presentation appropriately timed by the work of the Spirit about who God is and how we are all recipients of grace and how we meet people's needs because we love people because God loves people. That's the work of the ministry. It's one of the silver lining. You guys know, everybody in here knows When something bad happens and you go to help, you have never felt much closer to God than in those minutes where you have served and done ministry. There are people who go to offices and they have significant jobs all of the time, but you've had a chainsaw and you fixed somebody's uh, tree in the front yard that fell against their door or took out part of the roof. And when that job was done and the blue tarp was over it and you loved on that family, you never felt more like you had given some time away for the sake of the gospel any more than that moment. Unless, perhaps a little more if you've gone to speak the truth of the gospel in that setting. And when we serve, we're never any closer to Jesus than when we serve. That's the work of ministry. The question is, who all do we serve? Do we just serve believers? Do we serve believers first? Is it for loving each other within the church? Well, certainly there's some truth in that. The question of who gets a little thorny, uh, the question was posed, who is my neighbor in Luke 10, 25 through 37. Now, we're going to read this. It's a familiar passage, but I want you to look at the point of the question. Let's read it together. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, Do this and you will live. Let me stop right there. Remember the response was you love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Core of the gospel is a love for God that responds to his love for us. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. 
A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, time out, parenthetical, Levite, tribe of, sorry, Robert, the ministers of music of the day, those Levites couldn't take him anywhere. The Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. It's an interesting flip here in that this describes the neighbor as the one who came to render service and to bring help. But the point that was not lost on the religious person was the Samaritan would have been the least of these. Let me say that again. The Samaritan would have been the least of these, but he was described by Jesus as the neighbor. So when you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and you love your neighbor, you love others as you love yourself, Jesus is turning this on the head, its head and saying, it's the least of these. Matthew 25 is a passage I don't like. I don't like this passage. Don't like to preach it. Don't like to think about it. I feel convicted by it regularly. It's a doing passage. Matthew 25 talks about who these people are. And by these people, I mean us. Watch this. Matthew 25 says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. By the way, by the way, I turn to the other screen because you people are obviously the sheep. I'm sorry. Just kidding. Work with me here. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. 
For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. I don't like that passage. Jesus is in a season of his ministry. He's talking about the coming of the kingdom and he is literally challenging what all religious people thought because there was a religious code. There were religious bars to be raised up to. There was a law about virtually everything. It was the righteous and the unrighteous, the clean and the unclean, and Jesus blows that away. And he says, hey, everybody is to be loved, even the least. And they knew exactly what he was saying. And how you love people is how you love me. Because I have created these people, they reflect, respond to the creation of God by the very image of God within them. How you treat them is how you treat me. It's pretty simple. You know, we've over the years done a lot of Bible studies trying to understand the things we don't understand. The challenge for me and I bet for you too, is doing the things we do understand. You know what makes me uncomfortable? I'm being very transparent here. The guys at County Line Road with the signs, I'm conflicted. I still don't know exactly what to do. Sometimes I give, sometimes I don't. I try to be spiritually sensitive. I've done crazy things in my life. I've stopped in the middle of a late night run back from North Mississippi to Jackson on the interstate and picked up people who I, wisdom would say you never pick those people up. I've done some crazy things. My daughter, several years ago, uh, posted an Instagram post for something, Father's Day or Mother's Day or something, and said something about crazy kingdom parents who she woke up one day as a child And we had a lady on crack on our couch because that's the way we rolled. I've tried to take Matthew 25 seriously. I don't get it right all the time, but here's what I know. It's not optional. The least of these, our neighbor, are people who are not just like us, who think like us and look like us. They may not work like us. They may not vote like us. They may not love like we love. They may not assign scriptural truth just like we do. They may not have a, a uh, theological construction just like ours, but they are loved by God and they should be loved by us because God is loving them through us. That's ministry. James is equally uncomfortable to Matthew 25. You know these verses. James, the second chapter, tells us this. Oh, these are hard. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. 
But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Can we stop right there? We're all guilty. Can I get an amen? That's the deal. It isn't God helping you be a little better. We're all guilty. We're all desperate for the grace of God. James goes on very practically, and here's what he says. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Suppose we're a brother or sisters without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Hold on to that. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies? And sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. These are tough passages. And if you read the passage without the total counsel, the whole scripture, you can fall off a cliff on either side of this. James was the last book added to the canon because it was so practical and so deed-related to faith-oriented that it was a challenge to the grace of God, unmerited favor by God. It was no longer, understanding the gospel of Jesus, it was no longer what you did that commended you, but it was faith. And at the same time, faith is inextricably tied to deeds. If you're a person of faith, you should be acting as a person of faith. Let me say that again. If you're a person of faith, if you've trusted Jesus, you should be acting as a person of faith. The church exists for worship. That's the only reasonable response to the glory and the presence of God. Placing the mind's attention and the heart's affection upon him and responding to him for who he is and what he's done. The church should be telling the story of their salvation. I was blind, but now I see. And helping others be new sight receivers as well. Discipleship, we are called all 
to discipleship, to making disciples who make disciples. And we, we, you, the person around you, the person you go home to, anybody who's a believer are called to ministry. Not just people who are called to the ministry, but we are called to ministry. Ministry to who? Really to everyone. Especially and most difficultly, the least of these. People who are our neighbor, figuratively and literally. Why? Because it demonstrates the grace and the love of God in us as we meet the needs and we serve others. The church is called and exists in part for ministry. And your pastor who will come and your pastors who you have now are not here to do the ministry for you. They are here to help equip you for the work of the ministry that all together as the body of Christ, we can show the love of Christ to the world. I wrote this sentence, we're commanded to love in practical ways and God uses this as a witness to his grace and spirit within us. We're called to ministry. Would you bow your head? I want to chat for just a moment with you with your head bowed, your eyes closed, no distractions, just, just relax for a moment. I'm going to pray for us in just a moment. We're going to have a time of singing again and invitation. And it's an opportunity for you to make a, a public, a concrete response to what God might be doing in your life. You don't have to do this. This is not something that's biblically mandated. It is an opportunity that the church gives as an act of service that we could nail down what God's doing in our life so that others could serve us by praying for us and encouraging us, maybe admonishing us or confessing with us. So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I'm going to ask a couple of questions. Number one, do you know Jesus? There may be somebody in the room who's thought about him for a long time. Your heart has been restless, looking for the hope that you find, the forgiveness you find in Christ alone. If you've not trusted him, I would encourage you to trust him today. There's not a patterned prayer in Scripture that we pray. It's about our heart. It's a heart that says, God, I'm a sinner and I need you. I trust you. From this day forward, God, I surrender my life to you. Fill me. Lead me. God, I'm yours. I receive your grace and love. For some of us in the room, we... We need to be involved in ministry. We need to have eyes that are open so when we walk through Walmart, we see people who God loves. When we're struggling with relationships, we see people that God loves. We see people who need their needs met. We see people for whom meeting their needs would be a testimony of the grace of God in our lives. as the church, as we anticipate down the road by God's grace and timing, a pastor coming to, to lead this congregation. We want to have a biblical view of what that is. It's a shepherd, a pastor, an overseer, an elder, someone to be our, our shepherd as, as we are figuratively sheep in this place. 
We want to be grateful for the men and women God's placed in leadership here now with a high view for people who have a calling to, to pastor and to teach, to equip us for the work of the ministry. God's got great things for East Haven, great things. He's been faithful here for so long. He's working through you. I'm grateful for you. Let's pray. Father, I just want to say thank you, Lord, for loving us, for your grace. Thank you that you love us, not just to love us, but you've called us to a life of significance by doing ministry, by loving others, by representing you by the work of your Holy Spirit in our life in such a way that people will see you in us. Father, I'm thankful for East Haven. Thankful for the people you've brought here over the years and these past few months. And I'm grateful for the people who you've brought here today. And Lord, if there's somebody that would want to unite with this church to be a part of this body, I pray you'd give them boldness and clarity and encourage them, God, to do that, to step into these relationships and this body. God, thank you that the message of your word is that really we're all the least of these. We're all desperate for your grace, for forgiveness, for the hope we find in you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for loving us the way you do. I pray in the coming moments that there would be a spirit of obedience and response and worship as we close our time in this building continuing to be the church beyond these walls. So have your way in this time. We pray together as your people in Jesus' name. Amen.